being from Connecticut kind of got in the way of her doing such a bang-up job on the receptionist side. And he realized that in the fall, he'd broken it. And he wasn't getting home on that ankle anytime soon. We love stories! It's time for the apple seed, filled with stories for you and your family. Since 2013, we've been bringing you tall tales, personal tales, fairy tales, and historical tales, and more. All kinds of tales from all kinds of tellers. And today, you're going to hear an hour of stories filled with danger, mischief, imagination, and silliness. Today's tellers have shared their talents all over the world, and we're so happy to share their stories with you here today. I'm Sam Payne, and it's such a pleasure for me to be with you and bring these stories into your home and into your heart. And we hope these stories spark memories and thoughts for you that you can share with the people that you love. That kind of storytelling can make for memories that last a lifetime. You'll hear stories today from Michael Reno Harrell, a story called Rain Gauge about hijinks in a radio studio. You'll hear from Brett Dillingham with a story called The Things Willie Wumperbill Saw, a little silliness that you're sure to enjoy. And you'll hear the story called The Pancake from Priscilla Howe. I bet your mouth is already watering. But we're going to begin with the tale from the husband and wife duo, the story crafters, Barry Marshall and Jerry Burns, Ph.D. They've been telling stories together all over the world since 1991. Their delightful performances are filled with soulful, often toe-tapping music. And not only is this story filled with wonderful music, but it's about a musician, a fiddler to be precise. It's customary for gigging musicians to be paid in cash, but sometimes, as is the case here, they use the barter system. And that turns out to be a good thing for the hero of our first story. The story is called The Fiddler and the Wolves. The Story Crafters on the Appleseed. Not far from where we live are the Catskill Mountains. A story is told about a fiddler who lived there about 200 years ago. But not just any fiddler. This one was legendary. It was said that when he went into a dance hall and played his fiddle, his fingers moved so fast up and down the neck of the instrument that they looked like water tumbling over rocks in a stream. And his music was so lively and infectious that it lit fires under the feet of even the stoniest people. Their dancing feet were like mallets, the hall's floor was the drum, walls shook and foundations rumbled so that anyone passing by the hall would think that the building itself was dancing to that fiddler's music. And when that fiddler was hired to play at a funeral or a sad event, the airs that he played with his instrument were so sad and melancholy that everyone in the hall cried deep sobs. The crustiest mountain man miles away would have a tear in his eye, and even the dead body in the casket was known to have damp cheeks from the sound of that music. This was the kind of fiddler that everybody wanted at their events. He had lots of work. He went all around the Catskills playing every sort of event you can imagine. Sometimes the people paid him with cash. And sometimes they paid him with a barter. He was happy to receive whatever they gave him. Sometimes it was food, sometimes it was work, a little of this, a little of that. As long as he could get by, he was satisfied. Now one night, that fiddler played a dance in a village not far from his own cabin in the woods. And when he was done playing the dance, they paid him. Oh, but what they paid him? 
Mmm, they gave him two freshly baked loaves of bread. And a hot, roasted, juicy chicken. Well, he packed those things up in his bag. And he put his fiddle away in his case. And then he left the dance hall so that he could go home and eat his supper. He had a choice as to how he could go home. He could either walk down the roads back to his cabin. Or he could take a little deer trail through the woods behind the village to his cabin. That would get him home about twice as fast. Now the bread and the chicken in his pack was very hot. And he wanted to eat it before it got cold. So he headed home on the deer trail. It was a lovely walk through the woods that night. He felt comforted by the company of all the trees, but he also had the sky, for it was late enough in the autumn that the trees had shed their leaves and he could look right through the branches up at the stars. And the sky looked so different. It looked like it had taken on an extra layer of darkness against the coming winter cold, just like he had put on his extra wool sweater. And the stars in that extra dark sky looked like they were glowing a pale yellow. And he stared at those stars as they winked at him one after another after another. Bang! He fell. Something had gotten in his way on the path. He wasn't looking down because he was looking up at the stars. And when he looked now, he saw that a tree had fallen across the path since the last time he'd walked on it. Well, he had tripped over that tree and fallen and landed hard because when you're not expecting to fall... You land with a powerful splat, and after he'd caught his breath and tried to get up, ow, oh, that was when he felt the sharp pain in his ankle. And he realized that in the fall, he'd broken it, and he wasn't getting home on that ankle anytime soon. But it was much too cold for him to spend the night in the woods. He could smell the frost in the air, and so he felt around that tree to see if he could find a branch and there was one. He grabbed that branch and he raised it up to use as a crutch and he pressed He heard a sound about 20 feet off to his right in the woods. Well, he'd been in the woods a lot. There were always sounds like that. He didn't think much more of it and he pushed more of his weight onto that. He heard it again. It was about 20 feet off to his left. And he thought maybe that was a deer. A deer could move that fast. About 20 feet behind him. But was a deer that indecisive? It was about 20 feet in front of him. And it was then that he saw something. Well, he shook his head because he couldn't believe his own eyes, but it seemed as if all those yellow stars in the dark sky had sunk down through the murky night and were suspended in midair around him. But that couldn't be. That was ridiculous. So there had been whiskey at the dance, but he hadn't drunk any. That was impossible. So he figured, well, it was just some fireflies out in the woods. But the moment he thought that, he realized, no, it couldn't be fireflies. There had been frosts. There were no more fireflies left. And besides, fireflies would be dancing around in the darkness. These lights that he saw were just dead steady in front of him and beside him and behind him. And they formed a pattern. There were two there. And there were two there. And two there. And two there. And two there. And two there. They were all, all the way, way around, around him. him. And that was when he saw what they were. They were eyes on a pack of wolves. And that was when he realized what they wanted. He had that bread in his pack. Anyone with a stuffy nose could have smelled that bread miles away. So he reached into the pack. 
He grabbed one loaf of bread. He raised it high over his head. He threw it off to the right. <laughs> the wolves dove on the bread. Well, he dove on his pack. He grabbed hold of his <laughs> fiddle. They surrounded him again. They were about 15 feet away from him now. And now, in addition to those eyes, he could see their sharp, jagged teeth. He knew what they wanted now. So he reached into his pack. He grabbed the other loaf of bread. He raised it high over his head. He threw it off to the left. <coughs> the wolves dove on the bread. He tossed away the branch and he crawled away four pits. They were about 12 feet away from him now. He could hear their growling. And that's when he realized the wolves didn't really want the bread. They were carnivores. It was the meat they wanted. So he reached into that sack. He raised the chicken high over his head. He threw it behind him. The wolves dove on the chicken. And he crawled away, this time for more. They were about eight feet away from him now, and they weren't standing still. They were walking around him. They were spiraling in on him. Getting closer. And closer. And closer. They were all, all the way, way around, around him. him. And now he knew what they wanted. They'd wanted it all along. It wasn't the bread. It wasn't the chicken. They wanted him, and he knew it would only be moments before he felt their teeth sinking into his flesh and ripping his arms from their sockets. And just seconds from when he would feel their muzzles tearing into his belly and disemboweling him bite by bloody bite. He knew that wolves didn't always kill their prey before they ate it. He didn't want his last memory of life to be the sounds of their greedy gulping. His flesh tearing and his bones popping from the sockets. Or his blood-curdling screams. So, he reached down. He grabbed his fiddle case. He opened it up. He took out the fiddle. He took out the bow. He tucked that fiddle up under his chin and he started to play the saddest song that he knew. And the wolves got closer. The sound of that music was filled with every ounce of sorrow he felt at what was about to happen to him. And closer. He played that song as slowly as he could. Then they stopped. He got to the last note of that song. He knew they were ready to pounce. He played it as long and slow as he could. He got to the end of that bow. And he lowered the fiddle, and he waited. Then the wolves turned and walked away into the darkness of night. He watched them go, and he called after them, Well, if I knew you wanted me to play for you, I would have done that before dinner, and then I could have eaten the food myself. Fiddler and the Wolves, a story told for you by the Story Crafters. That's from a collection of stories called The Crack Between the Worlds. Of course, that was a story about a master fiddler who uses his talents and wits to get out of a sticky situation following a gig. There's a lot more coming up. You're going to hear an entry in the Radio Family Journal. You'll hear a story from Michael Reno Harrell about hijinks in a radio studio. You'll hear a story 
story called What Willy Wumper Bill Saw from Brett Dillingham, a little silliness you're going to love. And also you'll hear a story called The Pancake from Priscilla Howe. That's all coming up. I'm Sam Payne. You're listening to The Appleseed. We'll be back in a moment. Welcome back to The Appleseed. Here's Sam Payne. It's such a pleasure for me to be with you here on The Appleseed, bringing you tales of all kinds, from tellers of all kinds. If you're just joining us, a moment ago you heard a story called The Fiddler and the Wolves from the storytelling duo of Jerry Burns and Barry Marshall, the story crafters. A story about a master fiddler who uses his talents and wits to get out of a sticky situation following a gig. Well, there's a lot more coming up. You're going to hear stories from Brett Dillingham, a story called What Willie Wumperbill Saw, and And uh, that's uh, a little silliness you're going to enjoy. And, of course, you're going to hear a story called Rain Gauge, a story about hijinks at a radio station from the great storyteller and songwriter Michael Reno Harrell. And you'll hear a story called The Pancake from Priscilla Howe. But first, because we know that the sharing of memories can sometimes be the spark that ignites a story for you that you can share with the people that you love, they're going to share a memory of mine, a memory of visiting a monastery. It's today's entry in the Radio Family Journal. The Radio Family Journal with Sam Payne. A tiny little story for you and your family. Right when you need it. On the Appleseed. Some time ago, thinking about college stories, I found myself writing a piece about Dr. Mark Henderson, a music professor who was responsible for awarding me with a spot in the Weber State University Vocal Jazz Ensemble and a scholarship to boot. That gig and the scholarship made it possible for me to go to college at all. And for that and other reasons, Dr. Henderson became a prominent figure in the formative years of my university education. In one of our first meetings in the summer of 1989, Dr. Henderson drove a group of music students to the lovely Trappist Monastery in Huntsville, Utah, to listen to the monks sing vespers. We sat in the loft and watched and listened as the abbey's 27 monks moved to their seats and worshipped together in sung prayer. It was an experience that illustrated the impact and also the complexity of singing together in unison, listening carefully to one another, breathing together, many singers all settling into the same space in mind and heart and voice. It inspired reflection and reverence for me as a singer and as a worshiper, and those feelings were potent enough that I promised myself to revisit the monastery and hear them again. I kept that promise only very, very occasionally. I moved far away from where I went to college, making time for a drive to Huntsville only about once per decade when I was in town for one thing or another. But one recent autumn occasion presented itself. Suzanne and I were in Ogden for Leah, who was college shopping to tour Weber State University. And after the university tour, we took an afternoon to drive to the monastery It was an impossibly lovely rainy day. And we walked into the chapel and ascended the stairs to the loft where we waited quietly for vespers to begin. And into the chapel, one by one, came the monks, seven of them, 
they were, by and large, seven of the same monks I'd seen when I had first visited the monastery in 1989, almost three decades ago. These seven were all that were left. On this visit, the monks spoke the prayers together. They don't sing anymore. After the prayers, the seven of them silently shuffled out of the chapel. Watching them leave, I was filled with thoughts of ephemera, things worth treasuring while we have them, because in time they will go away completely. It occurred to me that most of the systems we observe are more cyclical than ephemeral. We watch graduating seniors leave a school and we watch students take their place. We watch parents have children and then we watch those children grow and have children of their own. It's like standing on the bank watching a river, more water always flowing by us, the water flowing by us in this minute very much the same as the water that flowed by a minute ago or an hour ago, and very much like the water that will flow by a minute or an hour hence. Enough water coming in that the water going out doesn't leave so much as a moment's empty space. But the monastery is a closed set, water flowing out, but no new water flowing in. The arc of the monk's story rose in the 1940s as young men singing with strong voices worked the monastery's land, 1,800 acres of it with strong hands. And those young men, sometimes 80 at a time, lived deliberately through the monastery's salad days of the 1960s, but they're going now. The worship hasn't ended, but the monastery has. The singing is done. And the land is being rented off slowly to neighboring farmers. That visit with Suzanne and Leah would be our last. The monastery has been phased out. My autumn visit to the monastery seemed to me an illustration of both the importance of storytelling and also the limits of it. The challenge for storytellers, perhaps, is not only to observe the important things in their experience for the sake of recording them, but also for the sake of participating in them fully as they're happening. After all, even the most skilled tellers can bring back only a picture of the things that happen. They can't bring back the things themselves. Tellers will work to tell stories of the monastery, but we won't be able to bring back the sound of the songs. While they were being sung, let's hope we listened. The Radio Family Journal of Sam Payne. A tiny little story for you and your family. Right when you need it, on the Appleseed. Thanks for joining me for that entry in the Radio Family Journal. There's a lot more coming up. You're going to hear a story by Michael Reno Harrell called Rain Gauge about uh, an elaborate weather-related prank at a radio station. But first, how about a conversation with a friend? Great stories come into our lives in so many ways through the books that we read, the films that we see, the songs that we remember, the meals that we share, and sharing with friends some of the memories of how those great stories get into our lives is something that we love to do here on The Appleseed. I'm pleased to be joined in the studio by Richie T, co-host of The Lisa Show. Richie, it's great to have you with me. Thank you for having me be here. (laughs) You know, talking about memories, sometimes... 
films can be like the biggest trigger for mm. you know you, you 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 sort of remember a film and it's it's kind of like a zip file right mm. it opens up into a memory that's a lot bigger than the movie yeah and, definitely uh, uh, the movie Forrest Gump does that quite a bit for me <laughs> I mean it, it, an epic film of length that the you know two three four hours sure, I can't even however, remember how right. long that is but I remember <laughs> thinking that it's long but but that isn't the the story that that I wanted to share with you, um, Forrest Gump for me was more of a lesson about friendship mm. and uh, about a turning of age that adolescence into young adulthood. And sure, I think as as people remember Forrest Gump, they remember all of the uh, they they remember sort of the superimposition of Forrest Gump's life into all of the historical mm-hmm. events mm-hmm. in which he participates, right? Yeah. And uh, but you're talking about a, a, an experience kind of beyond the movie. So the movie was coming out, yeah. and I remember I was old enough at this time, uh, back in 1994, to have had my first job. And so I got the pre-order VHS so that I could be able <laughs> to get this movie. And because I loved the movie so much, I decided, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to throw a big party at my house, and I'm going to invite everybody over. And beyond that, I'm going to dress up as Forrest Gump. And beyond that, I'm going to have the Curious George book that that Forrest Gump has. <laughs> and beyond that, I'm going to – and I tried to create everything within the film. And, you know, I'm 7th, 8th, or ninth grade at this point. Oh, wow. And so it's that first time you have the opportunity to be social. Yeah. You know, yeah. and you have the party, and you try and talk to mom, and I did this. Mom, it's fine. I'm old enough. I can have a party here. Let's w- let me have a party and you can step out. Take my other younger siblings and and I'll take care of the house and we can be there. <laughs> you have after all purchased the VHS. Yeah, yeah. You've prepared all the props and yep. costumes. Yeah. <laughs> so I said, you know, I got this. I got this taken care of. Well, a- as often happens with uh, you know, those middle school-aged parties, what was intended to be about a dozen people yeah. ended up being about 250 people <laughs> and, and policemen were called and you know everyone is congregating both in the house and on the front lawn and in the backyard and I didn't even know where all of the people were as they were doing it suddenly you were the party your parents warned you about yes right? Cops came in, made sure that everyone knew that they were not welcome to be there and that they needed everyone to separate. And and the lesson to me came from we ended up watching the movie and it was a small pocket of people who stayed after the cops had, you know, kind uh-huh. of scattered everyone else yeah. who stayed that knew how important this movie was for me. I felt sort of a kinship to Forrest Gump, yeah. kind of being maybe a little bit off or or trying to, you know, figure my way through the world and, and having that with me. But these people were people who sat with me, who mm. knew how much it mattered to me. And all of those people, there were six in total, including myself, all six of us continue to this day. Whenever Forrest Gump shows up, and it frequently does, whether on a streaming service or, you know, shows up on on TV, we'll message each other and be like, hey, I'm watching this today and I'm thinking about that night that we spent together watching Forrest Gump. Oh, man, that's fantastic. Tell me a little bit about those six. Who are the six? Well, so, I mean, obviously we all went to middle school together. Um, One, he is 
what I encapsulate to be a Forrest Gump. He has gone huh. um, all over the world. He works with the, the military and is in linguistics. And so huh. he's learned seven or eight different languages. And so he travels all over the world working with like em, uh, embassies and, wow. and, and different things like that. Another one is um, a mother of, I think, five or six children. <laughs> and, and she has talked about how uh, she's related how like the the movie Forrest Gump and how each of her kids how how she has connected them to that film and huh. how they it, it's almost like a rite of passage when they get to be old enough that the themes within that movie are okay for them to see that sure, they can sure. that they'll engage in it and 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 so they use they use that film as as that sort of transition from young oh, young adolescence to almost adulthood and <laughs> it's just fun to be able to connect with them over that you know it, 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 if you're listening it, it might not be Forrest Gump for you it might mm-hmm. be another film but those films that we watch with good friends and 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 kind of become these these sort of touchstones in the friendship, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, you can you 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 look back and remember when you all sat and watched that film. And I I hear you talking about everybody else for whom the party was just kind of what was going on in the right. neighborhood or in town, right? Mm-hmm. Showing up, and as soon as it got tricky, they skedaddled for yeah. other parts, right? For other pizza joints or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> but those friends that stuck around, and that that notion that that became again kind of this this sort of root of friendships that are still blossoming today. You know, and, and what I love about it, sort of taking it out on a bigger picture, is that I think for for me, that Forrest Gump moment, if there were a movie to be made of my life, that would be one of the moments which, as I'm sitting at a park bench and telling to someone, sure. would say that that was a forming formative moment of my life. Oh, yeah. And, you know, we don't recognize them as they're happening, no. do we? I mean, we, we it, that night just goes by. And then you look back on it later and you say, gosh, that that for for as quotidian as it was. Right. Mm -hmm. It it was it it was, as you say, formative. You know, it was foundational to the person that you are and some of the relationships that you have now. That's fantastic. Yeah. Ah, Richie Stedman, it's great to have you with me and uh, to talk a little Forrest Gump, you know. Life. This conversation has been like a box of chocolates. Yeah, you did not know what <laughs> you were going to get. <laughs> Again, great to have Richie with me. And, of course, we hope that the conversations and the stories that we bring to you here on the show spark memories and thoughts for you that you can share with the people that you love around the kitchen table or the living room. That kind of storytelling can make for memories that last a lifetime. Lots more coming up on The Appleseed. Great stories come into our lives in so many ways. A pleasure to chat with our friend Richie Stedman about uh, about his experience with a great movie. And uh, we'll be sure to have Richie back. There's a lot more coming up. You're going to hear a story up next from Michael Reno-Harrell called Rain Gauge about a prank at a radio studio. Stories from Priscilla Howe and Brett Dillingham coming up as well. You won't want to miss a single word. I'm Sam Payne. You're listening to The Appleseed. We'll be back in a moment. Welcome back to The Appleseed. Here's Sam Payne. 
It's such a pleasure for me to be with you on today's episode of The Appleseed. If you're just joining us, a moment ago we had a conversation with Richie Stedman about an evening that started off as an innocent gathering of friends to watch the film Forrest Gump and ended with the cops showing up. Hopefully no one has ever called the cops on you. But have you ever had an experience like that, one where a simple evening with friends took an unexpected turn? If so, we'd love to hear about it. And if you're willing to share, write to us at theappleseed at BYU. Now, our next story is from the award-winning songwriter, storyteller, and author Michael Reno Harrell. And this one holds a special place in our hearts here on the Appleseed team because it takes place at a radio station. It's the story of an elaborate prank, and we're happy to bring it to you. Michael Reno Harrell on the Appleseed. A lot of people ask me, uh, they say, why don't you... Why don't you write down some of those stories you tell at your shows and put them in a book? And I thought, well, that sounds like a pretty good idea. So I started working on that, and I found out that stories, they write different than they talk, you know? (laughs) And spelling's not near as important when you're talking. (laughs) But my wife showed me this little thing you can click on your computer and make a genius out of you like that. I could win any spelling bee now. Well, sometimes I can get close enough to where spell check will figure it out. And I have. I've worked. I've been working on a book of short stories, which we hope to have out this summer sometime. And if you don't mind, I'll just read you an excerpt from one of them. This is called Rain Gauge. My first experience of working around a group of adults was when I was hired at our local radio station, WMTN. Not as an on-air personality, although my older brother Eddie had been a disc jockey there before leaving for college. No, I was hired as a gopher slash lawn boy. <laughs> but it didn't, it didn't bother me because I, I was getting a start in radio, see? Now, the staff there at WMTN was a pretty eclectic bunch. The receptionist slash secretary... Estelle Prendergast was a retired business school teacher slash widow who had moved to our hometown in order to be close to her daughter and son-in-law. She could type well over a hundred words a minute on the old pre-World War II Underwood typewriter that she brought with her and could take dictation faster than a stock sale auctioneer could say, he'll give me 25. Well, both of these talents served her and the station well as far as the secretarial part of her job description went, but being from Connecticut kind of got in the way of her doing such a bang-up job on the receptionist side. Her Yankee accent and the typical southern Appalachian twang of most of the callers she encountered tended to clash somewhat. She never could quite grasp that a person calling and referring to herself as Murray was actually named Mary, <laughs> and she never quite figured out that when certain people called and said, Zmokhtar, they were actually asking for me, as Zmokhtar. <laughs> Poor old soul, I know just how she must have felt every time I try to carry on a phone conversation with my brother-in-law in in Boston. (laughs) Now, the station manager slash program director, Conley Sharp, was the choir director at his church, as well as the teacher, the men's Sunday school class, 
down at the holiness assembly. Now, that fact comes into play just a little bit further on in the story. We had a nighttime DJ slash, well, slash nothing, I guess. He was just a nighttime DJ. He's, he's the only employee without a slash, you know. His name is Rusty Lockhart, and he drove the 40 miles from Knoxville five nights a week to do the night shift there on the station. I thought we were lucky to have a big city DJ, you know, there from, from Knoxville. And Rusty, he was hip. Hip. He was, he was like sunglasses inside hip, you know. Now, he chain smoked Lucky Strike cigarettes and chewed Beeman's clove flavored gum constantly. It turned out that those two habits were actually to cover up something else. <laughs> Beer breath. <laughs> he drank a lot of beer. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> now, Rusty was a real pro on the air, so no one would ever suspect that he was guzzling a six-pack of Tallboy Budweiser's per shift. His show, Rusty's Rockers, started at six after the other employees had gone home for the day, and he signed the station off the air at midnight. So he almost never came into personal contact with Conley Sharp, station manager, slash program director, slash leader of the choir, slash Sunday school teacher, slash Rusty's boss. <laughs> that was a good thing. Now, Rusty's normal evening pattern consisted of cruising by Cotton's, one of the 20 or so local bootleggers, and picking up a half dozen big buds on the way to work. (laughs) (laughs) And since there was no refrigerator at the station, Rusty used the Coke machine in the lobby to keep his brew chilled. That old drink machine was one of the type that had a row of six flaps that dropped the soda of your choice into a tray after you slipped the dime into the slot. Well, good old Rusty would simply raise each flap and turn and stuff a can of beer inside where it would sit in 40-degree darkness until its owner would return and flip open the flap and free it. <laughs> Pretty innovative, wasn't it? Yeah. Well, now, the station and its adjoining tower were located in the middle of Mac McConnell's cornfield one mile past the Dairy Queen on the west end of town. The white-painted block building had no air conditioning at that time, and in the summer it would get as hot as the place all those Sunday morning on-air preachers warned us about back there in that windowless <laughs> control booth where Rusty resided. So, Rusty would prop open the front door, and leave the control room door at the end of the hall standing open, hoping that a whiff of night breeze might find its way into that oven back there where he sat. The front door had one of those little light beam deals that sounded a chime whenever someone stepped past the opening, so Rusty would have plenty of time to stash his suds if someone walked into the building. Well, I'd made it a habit to stop in on Friday evenings to keep Rusty company for a while and drop off a sack of Dairy Queen hamburgers for his supper. 
Well, one Friday night, about 9.30, things were rocking along this fire, and kids were calling in requesting the Stones and the Beach Boys, when suddenly the front door chime binged. <laughs> now, I'd arrived only a few minutes earlier myself, and Rusty had just opened his first cold brew of the evening, which he quickly slid into his Dairy Queen sack. <laughs> sure enough, it was... Conley Sharp, station manager slash program director. There was no mistaking who it was as Conley was known to sing his favorite hymn softly and tenderly whenever he was alone. Well, Rusty winked at me and slipped another stick of beamons into his mouth just as we heard a dime drop into the Coke machine. <laughs> Softly and tenderly would hardly describe Conley Sharp's station manager slash program director's reaction to what slid into that Coke machine tray. <laughs> The new night shift DJ never really did connect with the listeners <laughs> the way that good old Rusty had. <laughs> it was a big loss to the community all in all when Connolly Sharp dropped that dime. <laughs> the sales manager slash news director was a fun-loving fella named Wally Simpson. Wally was the staff practical joker. And my buddy, Jimbo Walker, copywriter slash afternoon DJ, caught the brunt of Wally's pranks and was always looking for a way to retaliate. Jimbo had suffered through records being glued to the desktop, <laughs> news stories printed in French, with a cover sheet stating, urgent for immediate broadcast. <laughs> and recorded commercials placed in the rack labeled Simpson's Funeral Home, but containing Jimbo's voice hawking the Campbell soup sale at the local giant supermarket. <laughs> now, the big event of the day on WMTN was the 12 o'clock news, and Wally, being the news director, always did that broadcast personally. At five till noon, his old Chevy wagon would come flying down the rutted drive leading through the corn and into the station's gravel parking lot. The National Weather Service had installed one of those white louvered boxes out in the edge of the lot there which contained instruments which recorded average wind speed, high and low temperatures, humidity, and barometric pressure. Wally would dash over to the box, open it, and quickly jot down all that meteorological information in a little spiral notebook, which he always kept for that purpose in his shirt pocket. He would then run into the building and scan the reams of paper, which had gathered at the foot of the Associated Press wire machine at the end of the hall, selecting the hot stories which had come across in the last 24 hours. At precisely noon, he would slip into the announcer's chair at the control board and proclaim, Wally Simpson here with all the news and weather from the WMTN newsroom. 
He, he would then read the selected news stories and cap off his broadcast with the weather statistics. Now, just behind the glass panel, which looked from the control board into the transmitter room, hung a rain gauge. This instrument consisted of a long, graduated glass tube about two inches in diameter. Its open top protruded up through the roof where it collected rain. <laughs> the exact amount which could be determined by reading the scale on its side through the window behind the control board. Wally would announce, and that, good listeners, is the latest news. The temperature now stands at a balmy 72 degrees Fahrenheit. The overnight low was a chilly 38, and the high yesterday was a sweltering 88 degrees. The relative humidity is 66%, and the barometric pressure stands steady at 30.1 inches. He would then look through the window behind the board at the rain gauge, check the level of water in the tube, and then announce, and the rainfall over the last 24 hours has been six-tenths of one inch. This has been Wally Simpson with all the news and weather. Have a great afternoon. He would then neatly stack his news stories on the shelf beside the record rack and walk back into the transmitter room where he would open the little valve at the bottom of his rain gauge, emptying it. He would then carefully close the valve, readying the instrument to collect the next 24 hours worth of rain for the following day's newscast. Well, late one sunny Thursday morning, Wally came flying down the drive at 5 to 12 and collected the statistics from the National Weather Service box. He then dashed inside and gleaned the hot news stories from the AP machine. And at exactly noon, he slid into the announcer's seat and began his newscast. At precisely 12.04 and 47 seconds, he announced that the relative humidity was a humid 81%, and the barometric pressure stands at 29.7 inches. At that same instant, Jimbo Walker and I stood on the roof, <laughs> transistor radio at our side, and we began to empty a five-gallon pail of water into the mouth of Wally's rain gauge. <laughs> I had the transistor turned up full blast, and we heard, and the rainfall over the past 24 hours has been glug, 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 glug. Holy crap! <laughs> Oh, Estelle Prendergast had her hands full for the next little while, you can bet on that. And Wally Simpson, <laughs> sales manager slash news director, went to work on an even bigger prank to pull on Jimbo Walker, copywriter slash afternoon DJ, Michael Reno Harrell slash gopher slash lawn boy, Remind me to tell you the story about the muskrat in the men's room toilet sometime.
<laughs> from a collection of stories called Tales and Tunes that was Michael Reno Harrell with Rain Gauge, a story about what a couple of disc jockeys do when they're bored at work. And in this next story, you'll hear about what one boy sees when he's bored at school. On the surface, little Willie Wumper Bill is just your average bored school kid. However, his imagination is anything but average. This story is from Brett Dillingham. It's called The Things Willie Wumper Bill Saw. You're sure to enjoy it. Happy to bring it to you on the Appleseed. The Things Willie Wumper Bill Saw Little Willie Wumper Bill was not your ordinary kid. Oh, no. It wasn't the way he looked. He was maybe a little short, a bit skinny, and had a few more freckles than most, but he didn't really stand out in a crowd. No, what made Willie an extraordinary kind of kid was that he saw things that other people didn't see. Things they didn't even think of seeing. One hot, sunny day, Willie was walking to school as usual, and as usual... He wasn't looking forward to it. He sat in class and watched the other kids and the teacher as the clock tick-tocked, tick-tocked. Boy, he thought, I sure am bored. Just then, a large black fly flew by his eyes over to the window, and it began to tap on the window. It was trying to escape. Willie could relate to the fly. He wanted to escape, too. Suddenly, he saw a huge polar bear looking into the room. It must have escaped from the zoo, Willie thought. The giant bear began to climb in through the window. Its head was massive, and Willie could see how hungry it was. The polar bear was about to eat Melanie White Shoes, who Willie secretly liked. So Willie got out his trusty straw with a spitball in it and deftly shot the polar bear in the eye. It quickly turned and jumped out the window. Willie, yelled the teacher, Mr. Boron. You know you're not supposed to shoot spitballs in class. Poor Willie Wumperbill was sent to the principal's office. When he got to the principal's office, he had to sit in a room all by himself. There was an old rug on the floor. Willie looked at it closely. It wasn't a rug. It was a boat. Willie jumped into the boat and began rowing in the high seas. There was blue sky all around him, except for a few dark clouds on the horizon. But as Willie looked, the clouds began rushing towards him faster and faster. A bolt of lightning shot out of the sky and crashed into the water right next to him, illuminating a huge shark. The shark looked up at Willie with its cold, hungry eye. Shivers went up and down his spine. He looked around for a weapon. Nothing. Then he looked at the oars in his hands. Willie broke one so he'd have a sharp point. Lightning struck again just as the shark's giant gray head lifted out of the water. Jaws open, row upon row of white teeth ready to bite Willie, who stuck the oar in the shark's mouth just as... The principal, Ms. Woodhands, opened her office door. Creak! We're sending you home for the day, Willie. You violated school rule X9.001007, spitballs from a straw. We're sending you home with a note for your parents to sign. And by the way... Why are you sitting on my rug? You look positively frightened, child. Little Willie Wumperbill walked home, feeling a bit dejected by the day's events. Didn't anybody else see what was happening in the world around him? Why was he the only one who saw polar bears? Why was he the only one who saw sharks? Why was he the only one who saw... <gasps> Just then, a large building in front of Willie began to shimmer. It changed shape, began to grow a tail... A pair of powerful legs, a monstrous head, 
It was a Tyrannosaurus Rex. The colossal Tyrannosaurus swiveled its massive head from side to side, looking for a fresh morsel to eat. It spied little Willie on the sidewalk. I must look like a tasty tidbit to that overgrown iguana, thought Willie. He turned and ran as fast as his short legs could take him. Behind him, he heard the great Tyrannosaur roar. Then felt the ground shudder beneath him as the ferocious dinosaur began to chase him. He ran across the street, turned around and looked as the huge paws of the monster crushed a car. As easy as Willie could crush a toy. Poor Willie ran even faster, but he could feel the earth shaking as the hungry Tyrannosaur got closer, closer. Willie could feel its hot breath on the back of his neck. He knew he was a goner. A tunnel. Willie saw a tunnel just ahead of him. With his last bit of strength, Willie's tiny legs pumped with all his might, and he ducked into the tunnel just as the Tyrannosaur's jaws tried to snap him up. But instead of eating Willie, his head smacked the roof of the tunnel. (laughs) Out of breath, Willie walked further and further in the darkness, barely hearing the roars of the frustrated beast outside. (laughs) Willie looked around him. Why, he wasn't in a tunnel at all. It was a cave. A couple of bats flew near his head. Squeak! And he almost tripped over a skull, white as vanilla ice cream, staring hollow-eyed at his feet. A huge rat scurried over to him and asked, Would you like a ride to the other end of the cave? Willie was scared of the giant rat, but then he heard the roar of the Tyrannosaur outside. So he said, "Uh, Sure, hop on my back and I'll give you one. So Willie hopped on the rat's back, grabbed a handful of greasy fur, and away they went. Shooting through the tunnel, lickety-split, fast as the fastest racehorse, till they got to the other side. There, Willie dismounted, thanked the kind rat, uh, thanks, Mr. Rat, and walked out into the sunshine. Willie was almost home when he saw an old man walking down the street. He had long white hair and a beard. As Willie looked closer, he noticed the old man had tiny stars circling around him. (gasps) He must be a wizard! Willie looked up in wonder as the old man came near. Well, what are you staring at, young man? You, you look like a wizard. Well, funny you should say that, because I am one. However, very few people realize it. They just don't see who I truly am, as a matter of fact. In order for you to know I'm a wizard, you must be magic as well. I certainly enjoy it. Poof! The wizard produced a rose from thin air and deeply inhaled its sweet perfume. Here, give this to your mother. I think you'll need to. The wizard walked down the street, Willie watching every step he took. Then he ran up the porch and went inside his house. As Willie Wumperbill got older, he saw magic everywhere. He began to be able to control it. He created fewer and fewer monsters and more and more beauty. For instance, when he walked outside and saw the moon, he could jet himself up to it in a matter of minutes. and cruise around its silvery surface. Or if he ate a cupcake at a birthday party, but was still hungry, he could shrink himself to the size of an ant, then stuff himself on crumbs as big as basketballs. I love cupcakes. I love cupcakes. Sometimes at night, he would transform his little rug into a magic carpet. Poof! Then he would open his window and fly all over the neighborhood. Sometimes the skaters would see him gliding over the tops of trees and yell out, Dude, there goes Willie! Check him out! And Willie would wave and smile until he disappeared from sight. There were very few things Willie couldn't do. 
Little Willie Wumperbill saw things that other people didn't see, and because of it, Willie led a fantastic life. The End The Things Willie Wumperbill Saw, a story told for you by Brett Dillingham, the author of the book Performance Literacy Through Storytelling. Brett Dillingham travels the world teaching kids to use their imaginations. And we've got one more story for you today. This is from Priscilla Howe, and it's a story called The Pancake. Have you ever dropped your food on the floor? What did you do? Throw it away? Observe the five-second rule? Well, when the breakfast food at the center of this story falls out of the pan, rolls away, and even talks, all of a sudden the five-second rule no longer applies. Join us for this silly little adventure, won't you? It's a pancake by Priscilla Howe here on The Appleseed. This is a story from the Netherlands, from Holland. Once there was a man who decided to have a pancake for lunch because sometimes in the Netherlands people eat pancakes for lunch. So he got out the pancake pan and he melted some butter and he made a batter. He poured that batter into the pan. It began to cook nicely on the stove, smelled delicious. But in a little while he said, oh, I better flip this pancake. And he picked up the pan and he flipped it the pancake, and the pancake landed right back down on the pan. Oh, and he cooked it a little bit more. I better, I better flip it again. And he flipped it up in the air, and the pancake landed on the floor. And then that pancake flipped itself up on its edge, and it rolled out the door. The man said, wait, come back here. You're my lunch. And the pancake said, no, 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 I'm off to see the world. And it rolled and it rolled and it rolled until it rolled past a cat. And the cat, the, the cat said, good morning. The pancake said, good morning. The cat said, come over here. Hmm, I am a little bit hungry. The pancake said, no, 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 I'm off to see the world. And the pancake rolled and it rolled and it rolled until it rolled past a cow. It rolled past a cow, and the pancake said, Good morning. The cow said, Mmm. Mmm. Good morning. Come on over here. I'm hungry. The pancake said, No, no, no. I'm off to see the world. And it rolled and it rolled and it rolled until it rolled past uh, a sheep. A sheep. It rolled past a sheep, and the pancake said, Good morning. The sheep said, My, Good morning. You look so tasty. Roll over here. The pancake said, No, no, no. I'm off to see the world. And it rolled and it rolled and it rolled until it rolled past a, a dog. And the pancake said, Good morning. The dog said, Woof, woof, woof. Oh, tasty. Roll over here. Pancake said, no, 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 I'm off to see the world. And it rolled and it rolled and it rolled until it rolled past uh, a, horse. a horse. And the pancake said, good morning. The horse said, roll over here or I haven't had anything to eat today. <laughs> pancake said, no, 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 I'm off to see the world. And it rolled and it rolled and it rolled till it rolled past a pig. The pancake said, good morning. The pig said, I didn't hear you. Could you come a little closer? The pancake rolled a little closer. 
I said good morning. I don't hear very well out of this ear. Could you roll to this ear, please? And the pancake rolled around to this ear. I said good morning. I almost heard you. Could you come a little closer? And so the pancake rolled close to that pig's ear. I said, good morning. Oh, good morning. And the pig ate half the pancake, but the other half of the pancake escaped. And it disappeared down, down, down into the ground. It twirled all the way down into the dirt. And to this day, if you go to a place where there are pigs, you will see them snuffling around in the dirt. They're looking for something. And now you know what they're looking for. The other half of the pancake. And that's the story. Priscilla Howe with The Pancake here on The Appleseed. A pleasure to bring you stories from Brett Dillingham, from Michael Reno Harrell, a conversation with Richie Stedman, an entry in the Radio Family Journal, and a piece from the Story Crafters at the beginning of the hour. Join us online at byuradio.org. I'm Sam Payne. Our producer is Jeff Simpson. Can't wait to be with you again on The Appleseed. Thanks for joining us for an hour of stories, music, and conversation made for you and your family and brought to you by The Appleseed. The show is a production of BYU Radio. We'll see you next time.